0: You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden, and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Well, we're beginning a new series this morning uh, for the season of Advent that we are calling Prepare Him Room. And the reason that we've entitled our series Prepare Him Room is, as Pastor Mark has already alluded to, we are uh, corresponding this series in the pulpit uh, with a devotional uh, by Marty Makowski called Prepare Him Room. And we're encouraging everyone uh, to either get their hands on this devotional or to participate in the things that we are doing for the Advent season at this church, because the season of Advent uh, is not just something that is geared toward young families, but it's a season for the entire church body, a season of preparation, and a series, a season of anticipation. And so over the next four weeks, uh, we're going to be hosting things on Saturday morning for young families. We're going to be posting things to our daily worship guides, all associated and aligned with this this devotional. And on Sunday mornings we're going to be taking passages from this devotional, primarily from the Old Testament, to look at those promises and those prophecies that God has given us that point to the birth of Christ. And I encourage you uh, to participate as much and as often as you are able to do that. Because I really hope, and we really hope, uh, that this season of Advent in particular can really deepen our joy in the promises of God and really cultivate our hearts to long for the return of Christ. And the passage that we're going to be in this morning is again taken from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 through 7. Very, very famous passage. And What we'll be doing is looking at this first promise that God gave to his people to point them to the birth and the coming of Christ. And over the last several weeks, we have been spending a lot of time already in the book of Isaiah. Let me just give you a little bit of background um, and kind of get us up to speed as to what's going on here in the book of Isaiah and kind of set the stage for where we're going to be going this morning. You'll remember that the book of Isaiah was written to the kingdom of Judah about 150 years before they went into exile under Babylon in 586 B.C. And all throughout the book of Isaiah, God reveals over and over again that the reason that Israel was going to be exiled was because of their unfaithfulness to the covenant that God had given them. And instead of turning to the Lord in their distress and in their anxiety, Israel turned to the nations around them. And in Isaiah 8, verse 22, God says, Because of that unfaithfulness, He is thrusting them into thick darkness. And that they would experience the distress and the anguish that their sins deserved. And yet, it is into this thickest of darkness that God in Isaiah 9 gives his brightest promise. He says in verse 1, There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Because on the people who walked in darkness, on them a great light has shone. And we see in verse 6, in Isaiah, centering this promise on the glorious news that for us, to us a child is born and to us a son is given. That God would not forget his covenant, but that he would send the promised king to rescue his people, to crush their enemies, and to sit upon the throne of David forever. And in Isaiah, this promise is glorious but it is also profoundly mysterious. And in fact, in 1 Peter, the Apostle Peter tells us that no matter how hard Isaiah sought to understand what God was talking about, it says in 1 Peter that it was revealed to him, to the prophets, that he was serving not himself but us, those who live in the generation that have received the gospel. And this is where the season of Advent begins. Really begins. It begins with a promise given to those who dwell in darkness. And oftentimes we associate the season of Christmas time with all sorts of delights. But perhaps this Advent season, when things are so uncertain and so strange, perhaps God is giving us an unforeseen gift. Perhaps with all of the gloom and the distress and the anguish of this hard year, perhaps God is reminding us that we actually do dwell in a land of darkness. However, it is into this real darkness that God is shining forth his brightest promise. That the promised King has come in Christ. And that we can rejoice because he has shown into our world and into our lives the light of his rescue, the light of his victory, and the light of his peace. That is where we're going as we head into the book of Isaiah. But before we dive in, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you have gathered us together this morning to hear your word proclaimed, to be together as a family, and to be nourished and strengthened by your word. We ask, Lord, as we look at this glorious promise that you gave to the prophet Isaiah, that you would give us a clear image of who our king is in Christ and what he has done to rescue us, what he has done to be victorious, and what he has done to establish his kingdom peace in our lives and eventually throughout the entire world. Be with us this morning by your spirit and illuminate our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen. So, even as we wrestle with the fact that we dwell in a land of darkness, we can rejoice. Because the light of our king has come. And it's shown in the fact that he has rescued us. I want you to notice in verse 6 again, that at the heart of God's promise to Israel is this child. One that is born to be king. And I want you to notice the titles that are associated with this child and with this king. He is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. And each of these titles reveals a different aspect of this king's character and of his accomplishments. And the title, Mighty God, that second one, is the most closely associated with the rescuing of God's people. Because that word mighty, as it's translated into English, actually comes from a Hebrew word that literally means mighty warrior or mighty soldier. All throughout the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Exodus and throughout the Psalms, God himself is described as a warrior king. If you go to Psalm 24, you'll see this language all over the descriptions of God's character. And as God has delivered His people in the past, so in this promise God is saying He will mysteriously come again and He will deliver His people from their slavery and from their sin. And I want you to see in verse 4 how there's an emphasis on this idea of slavery. The words in verse 4, like the word yoke, the yoke of his burden, or the staff for his shoulder, or the rod of his oppressor, all of these words are associated with the image of a slave master. However, I want us to spend just a little bit of time exploring something in verse 4 that really fills out what the promise is to Isaiah about this rescue. Because to really understand what Isaiah is saying here, we need to understand what he means by the day of Midian. I want you guys to look here in verse 4. He says, you have broken those tools of oppression as on the day of Midian. What is the day of Midian? Well, the day of Midian is the story that, about the person of Gideon that we read in Judges chapter 6. You will remember in Judges chapter 6 that it says the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and that the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian for seven years. And during this time, it says that Israel was profoundly oppressed by the Midianite people. And that they were so oppressed by the Midianites that they had to resort to living in caves just to stay alive. And finally, as Israel was burdened under the persecution of the Midianite people, they turned to the Lord and they cried out to him for help. And what did God do in response? God raised up the man Gideon to lead his people and to free them from their oppressors. However, if you go to Judges 6, which I encourage you to do, and read the story of Gideon, you're just going to see over and over again the emphasis in that story that it was not Israel's strength in battle that would deliver them, but that it was their God, their mighty God that would deliver them. That is the lesson of Gideon, the lesson of the day of Midian. And God is promising Isaiah that there would be one like Gideon, this child to be born, who would set his people free and deliver them from their oppressors. What amazing news for people sitting in exile to hear that this oppression would cease and that freedom would come. But what is really, really important, I think, for us to understand is that this illusion goes even deeper than that. Because when we look at the story of Gideon a little bit closer, we notice that in this story, God not only delivers His people from their oppressors, He delivers His people from their sin. If you go back to Judges chapter 6, what you're going to see is that before Gideon could deliver God's people from their oppressors, that Gideon's family needed to be delivered from the sin of their own idolatry. Let me go ahead and just read a little bit of Judges chapter 6. It says, The Lord said to Gideon, Take your father's bull and the second bull, seven years old, and pull down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on the top of the stronghold here. Gideon did this. Though timidly, if you actually read the story. And what's really important for us to see is that later, Gideon would fail again to lead God's people. And while at one time he had delivered them from their oppressors, that he had pulled down the altar to Baal, he failed to lead them in faithfulness. And they fell away from the Lord again and again. Notice how this same idea is echoed in Isaiah verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. That is the northern regions of Israel. That God and God has placed Israel and God has placed the whole world under contempt, under judgment because of our sin. But the promise is unbelievably glorious. God is going to send one who is a greater Gideon. One who would not only deliver us from our oppressors and from our enemies, but who would deliver us once and for all from our sin. And Jesus, the child born in Bethlehem, is that greater Gideon. He is the one who has come to rescue us from our slavery to sin. Listen how the Apostle Paul talks about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. That even as we dwell in a land of darkness this Advent season, we have seen a great light, a rescuing light that is shining forth in Jesus, our mighty God, and our warrior king. And so, what does this mean for us as we go into this season of Advent? Well, I think it means that we should be celebrating our king through rhythms of rest and repentance, right? As we begin this Advent season, we need to remember that the season of Christmas time is all about a rescue mission, and that God in Christ has saved us from our slavery to sin. And so, I encourage you, consider ways this season to celebrate that freedom. Ways to rest in Christ and to walk in repentance. Like Gideon, turn from your idols. Tear down the altars that you have built for your idols. Do not rest in your own strength. But instead, Create traditions this year that celebrate and rest in the work of your warrior king. But God's promises not only reveals the light of our rescue, but the glory of our king's victory. I want you guys to look really quickly at verses 3 and 5. In verse 5 it says, For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Notice the language of war in this verse. And picking back up the illusion of Gideon, God is promising a king who would not only free his people from their sin, but would completely subdue God's enemies and fully strengthen God's people. In verse 5, I want you to notice how complete the action is. The phrasing here is painting a picture of a battle that has already raged and a victory that has already been won. And the victory is so complete and so final that the description says that the uniforms of war are being gathered by the victor and being consumed by fire. No enemy is left after this war and even the memory of them is being erased. Unlike Gideon, who provided God's people with only a temporary victory, this king that would come would provide God's people complete and total victory. That all of God's enemies would be placed under the feet of this king. And this is the exact thing that David longs for in Psalm 110. Where David writes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And the incredible thing is that this promise has been fulfilled and is being fulfilled in Christ. I want you to hear how this language is picked up by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. There he writes, Christ must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Think about that. All of his enemies Put under his feet, either by grace or by judgment, all of God's enemies will be subdued. This is the victory of Christ. Through his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, he is and he will continue to subdue all of God's enemies. And as he does that, I want you to notice in verse 3, he is going to be strengthening and encouraging his people through the spoils of war. I love this verse. It says in verse 3, You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, and as, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. I want you to notice in verse 3 the emphasis on the joy that is brought to God's people as they receive the spoils of war won by their warrior king. Notice that the title Everlasting Father captures this so well. That this king is going to provide for the needs of his people the same way that a good and generous father protects and provides for his children. And the joy of these spoils, they're compared with the time of harvest. But they are in some mysterious way going to also multiply the nation of Israel itself. How is God going to do this? Well, I want you to to actually, if you can, uh, look at Ephesians chapter 4. You don't necessarily need to turn there. I'll go ahead and read it. But I encourage you later to look deeper at Ephesians chapter 4 because this passage is echoed in Ephesians in a profound way that we really need to wrestle with. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, that phrase, gave gifts to men, is the exact same type of language that means the spoils of war. And I want you to notice how Paul describes these gifts. He says, God has given us grace according to the measure of Christ's gifts to each and every one of us. But he gets even more specific. He says that he has given us apostles, prophets, evangelists, and shepherd teachers all throughout church history and in our church today. What, is, what God is saying is Christ has given us the gifts of our officers, of our elders and our deacons, of our pastor, of our evangelists, of our church planters and our missionaries. These are the means by which God is communicating and continuing to communicate the immeasurable riches of His grace toward us. That Christ is using these spoils of war to delight His nation. And as we continue to celebrate this grace and declare and demonstrate the gospel as the church, that that grace, those spoils of war will increase and Christ's body will be built up and strengthened and the nation of our God will be multiplied, as it says in Isaiah. I love how John Piper kind of articulated this in his book called The Joy of Nations. And in that book he writes this, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship does not. Worship is ultimate not missions, because God is ultimate, not man. And when this age is over, and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. What does that mean for us in this Advent season? I think it begins by us wrestling with the fact that Christmas time is not an American holiday. Christmas is the celebration of the coming of the Son of God for the citizens of heaven. That is what Christmas is. And we need to find ways to celebrate the victory of our King. We need to find ways to celebrate our unity in Christ as we worship together. We need to look for ways and opportunities to hear from and to pray for and even to partner with missionaries around the world. And church planters in our own state. This Christmas, we need to look for ways to enjoy deeper the spoils of war, the grace that has been given to us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. And the ultimate expression of this victory that Christ has won for his people is the light of his kingdom peace. Look in verse 7. It says, And of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I want you guys to notice the royal language of verse 6 and especially in verse 7. That God is promising and has promised that the child to be born would be seated upon the throne of David. And that this king would be given a kingdom that is both unstoppable and unshakable. Look in verse 7. It says, of the increase of His government and His peace there will be no end. God is saying that there will be no boundaries set on the kingdom of this coming king. And while this is explicitly what God promised to King David, I still think it would have come as a shock to the people of Israel as they sat in exile. That as the people of Israel sat in exile, they would remember that all throughout their history, they were a tiny nation surrounded by superpowers. And these superpowers constantly threatened their existence and tempted them into idolatrous alliances. And so to hear that God was going to fulfill His promise to David and install a king that would not just reign over Israel, but reign over all the nations, well, that would have been both the best news in the world to Israel and also the most confusing and mysterious of all promises. How was God going to expand the boundaries of Israel so far that the reign of this king would cover the whole earth? And yet this is precisely what God has done in Christ. In the Gospel of Matthew, in a section that we often read a little too fast, we see Jesus' genealogy in chapter 1. And in the Gospel of Matthew, the purpose of that genealogy is to show you that Jesus is the legitimate son of both Abraham and David. Jesus is able to be a king that sits on the throne of David because of his genealogy. And after his resurrection, Jesus told his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth, has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And in the book of Acts, it says it's going to start in Jerusalem, and it is just going to progress out and out and out until it covers the whole earth. The gospel of peace will go, Isaiah is saying, and it has come to all of the nations. And if we flip forward to Revelation chapter 7, we see this promise ultimately fulfilled in Christ's return. That as he is seated on the throne, people from every tribe and every tongue and every nation are gathered around him. He truly will be and is the Prince of Peace. I think the, the person who probably articulated this the most memorably in my mind is Abraham Kuyper where he said there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ who is sovereign over all does not cry mine. Every aspect of our human existence of our world and of our lives belongs to Christ by Right. He is the Prince of Peace. And His kingdom is not only unstoppable, but it is unshakable. I want you to go back to verse 7. And notice that it says, On the throne of David and over His kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. Notice here at the end of verse 7, that there is an emphasis on this kingdom's stability. Now, this is actually a little bit difficult for us as Americans to fully understand. And the reason for that is that when we approach political and governmental issues, we approach those issues from the perspective of democracy. But biblically speaking, the way that we should be thinking about this kingdom is through the lens of a God-ordained monarchy. Because in the Old Testament, the reign of a king in Israel was not judged by an electoral college or by popular vote. The reign of a king in Israel was judged by God. If a king kept the law of God, if he studied it and he led the people of Israel to do the same, then God protected that king's reign. And because that kingdom was being upheld by righteousness and by justice, it was established and upheld. But if a king neglected the law of God, as we see in the books of 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles over and over again, that when the kings neglected the law of God, they were warned by the prophets about their idolatry and when they did not heed God's warnings, God came with judgment and he removed the kingdom of from those kings. Because they were unjust and unrighteous kings. That's how we should be thinking about kingdom in the Bible. And here we see that God is promising a kingdom that's foundations will be unshakable because there is now a king who will, per- who will be perfectly just and completely righteous knowing and keeping the law of God and leading his people to do the same perfectly. And this is what the Apostle Paul says in my favorite Christmas passage in the Bible, Galatians chapter 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. This is why Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary and by the power of the Holy Spirit. His nature was perfect. He was not and he is not corrupted by Adam's sin, what we call original sin. And this is why Jesus was born specifically into the nation of Israel. So that he might know and he might keep the law of God perfectly. And the reason he did that was so that his righteousness could be extended. His justice could be extended for the sake of his people. And as we see in Isaiah, therefore his kingdom will be unshakable. The title that's most associated with this is to say that he truly is our wonderful counselor. Perfectly just, perfectly righteous, always ruling with wisdom. And that no matter what happens, he will always be on the throne because he deserves to be there. So what does this mean for us as we approach the season of Advent? I think it means we need to celebrate our king by living as citizens of his kingdom. In Hebrews it says, Be grateful therefore for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken And offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Think of ways this season to use your time, to use your treasure, and to create traditions that draw attention to the fact that in Christ we are citizens of heaven first and foremost. And think of ways, especially you families, to broaden the horizons of our celebration of Christmas. To talk about the grace that has come to us and to the nations. That we have received a kingdom that unlike our American democracy, is unshakable. That we have received a kingdom that is unstoppable. And so as we enter what will possibly be one of the strangest and the darkest Advent seasons in our country's recent memory, let us not forget the brightness of God's promise that we see here in Isaiah. We have a reason to rejoice. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Jesus, our promised King, has come. Our wonderful Counselor mighty God, everlasting Father, our Prince of Peace. And at His coming, He has shown into our lives the light of His rescue, His victory, and His peace. He has rescued you from your sin. He is subduing all of His enemies and He will continue to strengthen His people because He will reign forever and ever and ever. May the Lord be glorified as we celebrate Him this Advent season. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so in awe of your promises and your goodness and your faithfulness to fulfill them in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you that by the cross He has rescued us from our sin. That by his resurrection, he has put all of his enemies under his feet and he will continue to do so until his victory is final. And we thank you that you have graciously transferred us into his kingdom. Remind us of its unstoppable and unshakable nature this Christmas. And fill us by your spirit with a longing to celebrate you, Lord Jesus, even in the midst of this hard, in difficult season. We thank you that you have called us to be your people and gathered us this morning. Continue to use your grace as you have measured it out to us in this unique body for our encouragement and our strength. In Jesus' name, amen.